Well, hello there. How are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. I'm Nikki, your host. And before we start first, I just want to thank every person who listened, followed, reviewed, shared, did anything for my first two episodes. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. I was reeling last week from all the support, and I honestly hope to get better and better every week. Uh, I hope I can make you guys proud, and everybody who's here listening right now, y'all genuinely have my heart. I, oh, I love y'all. Thank you. So, okay, we're done with the mushy stuff. And for this week, we're doing a little time traveling, guys. So our first two movies were a product of old Hollywood, some late 50s, early 60s stuff. But there is more to old movies than the 1950s and glam and glitz. Grab those scrunchies. Get those leg warmers ready. Because we are headed to 1983. Welcome to the 80s, where fanny packs and neon colors found their home and got their entire life. Now, we also know that with the 80s and cinema, we can't talk about it without mentioning the rise of the slasher film. So it came in hard in the 70s, but in the 80s, we got that huge slasher boom. Now, last week we talked about Psycho, highly recognized as the first slasher movie in mainstream media. Now, for reference, that was 1960, right? Halloween was released in 1979 and the first Friday the 13th in 1980. And Nightmare on Elm Street wouldn't come out until 1984. But here in 1983, we were in complete camp horror territory. So I mentioned Friday the 13th with our favorite camper in a hockey mask. Our boy Jason came out in 1980. So getting unalived at camp was like practically a trend at this point. So... No surprise that in 1983, Robert Hiltzik had the grand idea, right, to release our film for today, Sleepaway Camp. This movie ended up starting a franchise that ran until about 1989, then rebooted in 2008, followed by a version released to DVD in 2012 that basically consisted of pieced together footage from unreleased stuff from 1992. But this first film is probably iconic for any people who have seen it. It had a $350,000 budget and ended up making $11 million total at the box office over time. Now, I was really excited to do this movie this week, had been thinking about it practically since before I started the podcast. And my normal cadence is to watch a film through one time to get like a full watch experience. Then I do a second watch to take notes. I had forgotten that like the whole reason that I wanted to do this movie. Probably the reason that anybody watches this movie, anybody talks about this film, is mostly the ending. Now, Sleepaway Camp is an hour and 22 minutes long with opening and closing credits. So I had to watch through about an hour and 17 minutes of cheesy 80s murder and dialogue to get to this ending. Twice. You are very welcome. But this is why I do it, right? This is why we're here. So you don't have to watch it. 
I do it for you. So I'm going to be going through characters and plot because that's what we do at Halev Pod, right? But the names, the characters, the plot, most of them are really a means to an end. And also, the campers are played by actual children. Like the lead actress, when she got this role, was 13. So most wouldn't really be recognizable, didn't really go on to be famous. And the adults in the movie aren't exactly A-list actors either. Now, it's still a ride. For sure. It's fun. It's a fun watch, but it was clearly made to contribute to the genre and for this ending. That's it. So for our main characters, we have Angela played by Felissa Rose, uh, Ricky played by Jonathan Tiersten, Judy played by Karen Fields, Paul played by Christopher Collette, Mel Costick, who's the uh, camp manager played by Mike Kellen. Uh, Meg, played by Catherine Cammy, uh, and a slew of other names of other people who aren't really um, name recognizable, except for one specific person. Uh, there's a chef named Ben, a cook named Ben, who's played by Robert Earl Jones. That name might sound familiar to you. You know who Robert Earl Jones is? That's James Earl Jones's daddy, y'all. I didn't even know he did movies. Now, I'm not going to speak on how he did in this role because it is an 80 slasher film and we're not talking about that. But you know what? I am glad to see James Earl Jones' daddy was out here getting work too. So kudos to him. That's crazy. So now that we have our players, let's press play. So we start with a dedication on screen text. In fond memory of mom, a doer. No idea what that means, especially considering like the context of the movie, what the movie's about, the ending of the movie. Rest in peace to mom, but that is a weird dedication for a weird movie. Our opening credits begin. We got a deserted camp and we can hear the echoes of general sounds of kids at a camp. So there's a baseball game that happens later on in the movie that I think that they use for these sound bites. And there's a clip from the cafeteria where the kids are chanting something, but I don't really know what they're saying. And they use that clip too. But I feel like they could have just gone to like a playground or someplace where there's a lot of kids and just did a general recording. I don't know if you need permission to do that, but it probably would have been better than the sounds that they used. I don't know. So for a mental picture, this is supposed to be at a fictional camp called Camp Arawak, which is actually set in Argyle, New York, at this camp called Camp Algonquin. And um, this is supposed to be a summer camp, but they started filming too late. So you can see like the leaves changing and it looks like fall, but they're supposed to be dead in the middle of summer. So after the credit sequence, we open up to a lake. Peter, who appears to be about five, Angela, who's maybe seven, and their dad on a boat in the middle of the lake. So the kids decide it would be funny to rock the boat so that it capsizes, which I would not find funny at all, but the dad is mad cool about it. He's like a fun dad. And meanwhile, there's some kids that are driving a motorboat around and pulling a girl on the jet ski in the back, and she doesn't really seem excited to be on this jet ski, and it kind of seems like they're messing with her, but like, I don't understand. But um, the somehow from way behind the boat, the girl on the jet ski sees these kids and the dad in the water, but the people in the boat miss them for some reason. So 
The dad's quote-unquote friend on the shore, this guy, says they need to bring the boat in to leave. And as the dad and kids are trying to get the boat and themselves out of the water, somehow these kids in the motorboat aren't able to turn the wheel in time, and then they run them over. Now listen, the girl that was on the jet ski deserves an Oscar for this scene because Sis was screaming for her life. She was like, oh my God, we hit a boat. Somebody help them. They're going to die. I know it. Please, somebody help them. We hit a boat. She kept saying that over and over again. Everybody else in the scene is dead ass quiet, just staring. And this girl is screaming like this is her big break. And I hope it was too. Like I really hope that she did some other movies after this. And I can't find her name in the credits because they don't list her as like girl on jet ski and they didn't say her name in the scene, but she deserves all the credit. If you're listening to this right now, you deserve. She was probably the best actress in this movie. I'm not playing. But after she does all that screaming, we see the dad's body float by along with one of the children's life vests. So now we flash forward to modern day. This was 1975, and this is modern day, which is 1983. So we're met by Aunt Martha, the aunt of the kids that we saw earlier. And she's like a mix of Gene Wilder's and Johnny Depp's Willy Wonka. Like, she's really happy, but in a very, like, eccentric way. So she calls her son, Richard, who we call Ricky for the rest of the movie, and her niece, Angela downstairs. So they're getting ready to go to camp and Martha's packed snacks for them. And she is especially sweet to Angela. And she keeps calling her like her little girl, but Angela is like completely silent, does not talk. Um, seems very shy, but like strangely shy to be around your aunt, but also her aunt is really weird. So I'm not surprised. So Ricky seems super normal and well adjusted, even though his mom is mad weird though. So then she mentions that she tied a string around her finger to remind her of something and she makes a big deal out of it but then she starts admiring the string and Ricky has to be like girl like what did the string remind you of like come on so then she runs off excitedly comes back with the paperwork for their physicals to go to camp then she says just be careful not to tell anyone how you got them they'd never approve of them at all even though they know I'm a doctor no context for that no idea what that means, but she's weird. So, okay, cool. So she says goodbye to them and tells Ricky to make sure to take care of Angela because this is her first time really being like out of the house. So the next shot is all these kids running down the hill into camp. You know, every camp movie or a lot of camp movies always have this shot of a bunch of kids running excitedly into camp. It's that. So there's boys and girls probably between the ages of about 8 and 15. And to the side, while the kids are running in, the kitchen staff are watching them run in. And so we have Artie, this gross-ass, sweaty man, Ben, who is James Earl Jones' daddy, and a few other guys who don't talk and we don't really know who they are. So Artie's nasty ass goes, look at all that young fresh chicken. Where I come from, we call them baldies. Makes your mouth water, doesn't it? <clears throat> and he's like chewing on a stick, being like real weird about it. And Ben is like, they too young to even understand what you got going on. And Artie's like, well, they ain't never too young, Ben. You just too old, which is like a weird thing to say. And then Ben starts laughing at it. And I think Ben is supposed to be like not very well educated or not all the way there. But either way, the whole scene is like super creepy. 
Now, on the way in with Angela, Ricky runs into his boy, Paul, who he's known for a few years since they both started going to camp. Paul tries to say hi to Angela, but Ricky's like, yeah, she's shy, but we'll catch up later. I have to take her over to the girls' dorm. So he leaves, and Paul tells Ricky, where do you get a load of Judy? Because apparently this girl Judy hit puberty, and Ricky used to talk to her last summer, but they fell off. So he's hoping he can kind of like talk to her again. He sees Judy and tries to say, hey, but Ricky still looks like he's about 12. And Judy's trying to holler at all the older dudes. So she plays him off like she used to babysit him in front of these dudes that's trying to get with her. So the movie is clearly setting her up to be like this like promiscuous girl. But it's mad weird because she's literally probably like 13 or 14. The girl that played her might be might have been about 16 at most. So anyway, she says something about girls maturing before boys when Ricky's like, oh, those boys are too old for you. And Ricky little ass called her a bitch. So just to be clear, typically in movies like these, young adults were casted to play teens in these kind of slasher movies. So you'd have people who were like maybe 15, 16 years old. So it made sense for them to maybe be starting to have sex. But they were also played by people who were like 21, 23, 25. So having actual young teenagers in a film like this is kind of insane. So in the girls' cabin, we meet Meg, who's the girls' cabin leader. And she's probably about 17 or 18 or so, older, but still clearly a little mean girl. Meanwhile, Judy's sitting on her bed, filing her nails. Angela staring dead at her, like no blinking or anything. And Judy gets a little attitude with her, but she won't, um, Angela won't look away. And she still won't talk. She won't say anything to them. So now Judy and Meg have a little vendetta against Angela because she's new and she's also kind of weird, to be fair. I'm sorry, girl. So now at lunch, Meg starts freaking out on Angela because she hasn't eaten in like two days. But the camp counselor, Ronnie, he comes over and he offers to take Angela back to meet the staff and maybe find her something to eat. So he takes Angela back to Artie. Remember Artie from earlier? And asks him if he can find Angela like some ice cream or something that she likes and she won't eat. Artie takes her to the freezer alone with no other adult supervision. And he immediately gets creepy and tells Angela, oh, I got something for you. And he's starting to take his belt off. So Ricky is looking for his cousin because he is always looking for his cousin. Always keeps out on a watch for this girl. And finds them in the freezer right as Artie's coming towards Angela. So Artie freaks out and chokes him up and gets all weird, but then he tells the kids to just go on and leave. So they run out, and the camp manager, Mel, is standing there and asks, what's wrong with them? And Artie's like, oh, I must have just scared him, while he's buttoning his pants back up. And the camp manager is just like, yeah, I guess, while he's buttoning his pants back up. So after lunch, Artie's making corn on the cob to prep for dinner. And he has this tall-ass pot on his stove that he has to stand on a chair to see into. And he's boiling water for the corn. He goes into the pantry because they run out of salt. So now we get this weird first-person perspective of someone sneaking in and hiding behind the counter. So once he comes back in and gets on a chair to put the salt in the water, someone starts to pull the chair from under him and like pushes him a little bit from behind. And he hurries on and grabs onto the shelf that's in front of them and tells them to stop playing. And for some reason, he doesn't 
just like jump down off the chair. He stays on it and just keeps like screaming at them to like help him. And he's like, I'll get you some ice cream. But he stays up there and yells variations of like no for about 15 seconds before they eventually pull the chair from under him. He grabs the pot of boiling water and the boiling water spills onto him while he falls. Now, I don't know what happens when a pot of boiling water falls on you. I know it hurts a lot and it burns and it probably causes some like welts and things. But this man's skin started melting off and causing boils that made him literally look like Freddy Krueger. It was wild. And his boils were pulsing. I know it's a slasher movie, but... (laughs) Okay, so he's still screaming in agony when the ambulance gets there to cart him off and he's covered in bandages. But the camp manager is determined to have this declared an accident because he needs camp to keep going. So he doesn't get, he just glazes over it, keeps it moving, promotes Ben, and we're good to go. Meanwhile, we get maybe an eight to 10 minute montage of the boys messing around in their dorm and then they go out to play a baseball game against the older boys and it is a very long baseball game and I'm not really sure what we're supposed to get out of it other than ooh boys do stuff and these boys are wearing like crop tops and short shorts but the interesting thing about this is there's a lot of times in this movie where like they show boys doing boy things and wearing not a lot of clothes and being wet and all sorts of things that you usually associate with girls, women in these movies and sexualizing women, but they kind of do it to boys and we don't necessarily see nearly as much skin of any of the girls in the movie, which is sort of refreshing, but also sort of weird because as I said, these are all young boys, but I mean, I guess this is how people dressed in the eighties. This is how people were in the eighties. So you can't blame them, but still a strange choice. So now we cut to a teen social and the guys are talking about going skinny dipping and randomly start talking about how they should invite Angela, you know, just like being assholes. And two of the guys, Kenny and Mike, go over to like talk to her and invite her, but she's still dead ass silent and just stares at them like they're crazy. It's so funny watching her stare at them because she is crazy, but the way she stares at them is like, why are you talking to me? So eventually, Ricky comes in and sees the boys messing with her and calling her crazy and stuff. And they end up starting a fight because he's ride or die for his fam at all times, which he should be. So he gets kicked out with a bloody nose. Kenny and Mike get kicked out too, but Paul stays behind and starts chilling and talking to Angela. She's not talking, but she starts smiling a little bit while he's talking. And after a while, Ronnie says they have to head to bed. So when Paul gets ready to leave, Angela says, good night. These are her first words the whole movie. So Paul is like super hyped. Now the whole time Paul was talking to Angie, Judy's looking from the corner, mad as hell that somebody's being nice to Angie. Like a hater. Anyway, now all the dudes are at the dock and they're trying to convince the girls to hang out, but they don't want to. But Kenny manages to take this girl Leslie out on a boat. And once they get out on the lake, this dumbass starts rocking the boat. So it flips over and they're both fully clothed with regular clothes on, like not swimsuits. And Leslie obviously swims to the shore because she's not dumb and she's irritated. But this dopey ass dude, Kenny, is hiding under the flip boat saying random shit like, Hey, Bubba Ray Bub. I guess he thinks his voice sounds funny under there or something, but it's like really weird. And he's just hanging out under the boat. So while he's under there, a random person pops up and 
and just pushes his head down underneath the water with very little effort. And all his homeboys decide to leave because they think he's messing around like he always does. And the next morning, one of the camp counselors goes out to clean up everything at the shore, flips the boat, and finds his body. And it is already rotting and bleeding and filled with water snakes and bloated after maybe only like eight hours max. But as I said, it's a slasher movie. What do you expect? So now Mel is having a moment because someone is dead, like for real, for real. And he's trying to convince everybody, including this cop, that Kenny must have hit his head on the boat, like fell out. And then this happened and it was an accident. But Ronnie says he remembers that Kenny could swim really well. But, you know, Mel is trying to sweep it under the rug because he needs camp to stay open. Cut to that afternoon and Angela's sitting on the sidelines while the girls are playing volleyball. Literally just not trying to be involved in any activities. While she's just kind of staring off into space like she does, Paul comes over to sit with her and her face immediately brightens up and she says, hey, and they start talking. And Paul asks her if she'll be his date to the movie at the rec room that night and she agrees. Meanwhile, Meg and Judy are off on the side hating again, but not even from the sidelines because Angela's on the sidelines. They're on the court hating on the sidelines. So Judy said, look, and this is exactly how she sounds when she says it. Hey, why does Angela get to talk to the boys all day and we have to play volleyball? What's she? Special? Oh, I hate her voice and I feel so bad because she's like, 14 but she's so annoying so meg takes her hating ass over there and basically tells judy that if she gonna sit on the side she gotta sit on the side by herself and be lonely and bored and she can't talk to boys but this other girl Susie, who's like really nice comes over to sit with her and like hangs out with her so that she's not by herself meg is mad so they go to the movie they're leaving the movie paul asks angie if he can walk her back to her cabin and she's like yo so meanwhile, Ricky's trying to get back with Judy, but she's not hearing anything because she's steady watching Angie and Paul still hating. She cannot stop staring at them. So Paul walks Angie over to the side of the cabin and says he wants to show her something. So he gets over there and randomly kisses her on the lips like, Mwah. and then he immediately apologizes and says, I'm sorry for doing it. And she says she's not mad, but she has to go to bed. So he asks if he can do it again. She turns her head towards him a little bit and he just does the same thing. It looks awkward and not enjoyable. And she just goes back in and says an awkward goodnight and goes back in the house. So Judy gets all in Paul's face as soon as she goes in the house, flirting and smiling with him. But he's mad uncomfortable, so he goes home. So the next day, they're all out swimming. But guess where Angela is? Not swimming, that's where. She's sitting on the side. <laughs> So Paul comes over to chill with her again, and they're cute for a minute, but then Judy comes over and says some bullshit about how cute they are, and Paul tells her to leave. So, of course, she goes over to Meg, and as soon as Paul sees them walking over, Paul pieces out. So Meg gets over there and asks if Angela can swim, and she just stares at her like she always does. And so Meg starts yelling at this girl. She still will not answer. So Meg grabs her by the shoulders and starts shaking her because she won't talk to her. So Ronnie comes over. He's not having that. So Meg ends up getting in trouble. And he goes, he checks on Angela to make sure she's okay. Back in the girls' cabin, Judy starts messing with Angela because, quote unquote, she got Meg in trouble, even though Meg did it. Asking, she's asking her why she doesn't take showers with everybody else. And then she starts making fun of her, saying she probably hasn't hit puberty yet. And she says, 
she's a carpenter's dream, flat as a board and needs a screw, which is a wild thing to say to somebody. And so Susie, the nice girl, tells Judy to stop. Judy tells Susie to fuck off. So Susie slaps her dead in the face. And Angela's like, all right, I'm about to go see my cousin. And she just leaves. So she gets over to the boys' cabin, and the boys are having like a water balloon fight, and they see her coming. And of course, you know how boys are anyway, so they decide they want to mess with her. So they throw a water balloon at her. One. She immediately falls and like sits on the ground and grabs her knees like she's traumatized. Ricky comes outside and starts going off on them, calling them all sorts of pricks, assholes, peckerheads, all sorts of stuff. Paul also comes out, but then he goes and sits with Judy on the side. Mel makes him stop arguing and all the boys get in trouble, even Ricky. But Angela seems super traumatized just from being hit with a water balloon. But we know what happened in the water earlier in life. So maybe that's why. So one of the guys who threw the water balloon at Angela, and I only know his name is Billy because of the wiki article that I read on this. They never say his name. But he goes back to poop before they go to play a game against the counselors. So everybody leaves the cabin. He's in there by himself sitting on the toilet. And it has about four stalls. So we can only see his shoes with his shorts pulled down around his ankles and the top of the stall. So at no point can we see his face or anything that's going on with him in the stall. We only get perspective from the outside. Someone slides a long stick across all the stall doors so he can't open the door through like the hoops in all the doors. Then they go outside, cut a hole into the mesh in a window behind old dude, and they stick a whole beehive in the stall. The person's hanging a beehive from a stick on the outside, from the outside into the stall. We never see bees flying around in the stall, like above or below the stall by his feet or by his head, nothing. Somehow the bees are only contained to the area inside the stall that the camera can't see. But we can hear them and we can hear him screaming, trying to open the door. And by the time he's able to break the stick and open the door, He's, of course, dead, and he falls out of the stall, and he is covered in welts and stings, and the bees are just kind of, like, hanging out on his face, like, crawling on it, eating it. There's, like, a few flying around, but most of them are just clinging to him, which I don't think bees do. I think they fly around and disperse, but, of course, this is a slasher flick. I get it. Okay, so... Now Mel is panicked because someone else is dead and we know that somebody's doing it. He's convinced that Ricky's doing it because of the whole water balloon thing and how mad he was. And um, a lot of the stuff that's happening is happening around Ricky. But he's not saying anything to anybody. He's just sort of assuming. So Angela's out waiting for Paul. He sneaks up on her before they end up going to over to the beach. She makes him chase her around a little bit before he finally falls on top of her and kisses her real romantical like. And he starts to unbutton her shirt, but then she has this random flashback to her dad in bed with his male lover, the guy that had been on the beach. And then they show Angie and Peter giggling like at the door as kids. And then there's this random cut to us with the kids. They're sitting cross-legged on the bed facing each other and just pointing at each other. But 
No words. It's just weird music. And then Angela snaps out of her weird flashback, runs off, and leaves Paul on the beach, confused as hell. And also me, because I was like, what the fuck? So anyway, the next day, they all plan capture the flag. They do a very long and full explanation of how the game is played. I don't know why they are so insistent on letting us know that these people are at camp. We get it. Paul finds Angela and asks if he did anything wrong the night before. And she just says like, oh, I just wasn't ready. So he tries to put his arm around her being kind of cute. She freaks out and walks off by herself. Judy brings her ass over and says like, she, he should just let her go because she's so small anyway. And Paul's like, what do you know? And Judy's like, I know a lot of things because you know Judy. Anyway, Ricky finds Angela walking down the road and and actually convinces her to play to help him win. Because he's like, if we could play and we win, then you don't have to worry about playing anymore. So they make a plan to go around the back way and split up to get the flag. So while they're sneaking through the trees, they see Judy kissing Paul, scheming as Judy. So Angela runs off and Paul chases after her because he done got caught. So... The next day, Angela's sitting on the side again, and Paul comes to apologize, and she is done talking to him. So she's just staring off into space like she always does with everybody else. Judy comes over and tells Angela that Paul called her a prude, so he just kind of dips. He don't even deny it. He's like, I got to go. Meg comes over and has the bright idea at this point to pick Angela up and throw her in the water with all her clothes on. So the whole time, she's carrying Angela towards the water. Ricky is trying to go help her, but Mel decides that right now is the right moment to start accusing Ricky of all these murders and freaking out on him and yelling at him. So Angie gets thrown in the water, and we know she don't like water. Ricky runs over to help her, and he is livid. He is swearing revenge on anybody who fucks with her. And while they're walking back to the shore... Some of the younger, like, kids who are, like, 8 to 10 years old, they start throwing sand at them, fucking with them. So, like, everybody is messing with them at this point. That night, Meg gets the night off. And she decides she wants to spend it with old-ass Mel. Now, remember, Meg is about maybe 17, 18. Mel is probably 55. And I am being nice by giving him that age. She starts flirting with him and basically asks to come to his house. And, of course, he's hype about it because he's old. And she's like 17 and he's gross. So she goes to get showered up for her little old man booty call, but there's a line to the shower in her cabin. So Meg decides that she's going to take a shower in the empty cabin next door. I don't know why no one else was using that cabin or why they didn't like split the girls up between the two cabins. She goes over there by herself into that empty cabin. So she's pantomiming the worst shower. She's like rubbing herself with the soap, but the soap isn't even really touching her body. She's just rubbing the middle part of her chest and that's it. She's humming, but humming the same eight notes over and over again. But we all know why we're here. So like, okay, fine. She's showering. The killer comes in and stabs through the back of the shower. Like, the linoleum part of the shower? Like, it's not the shower curtain because they show that the curtain is pink and the knife stabs through something white. And they never really show full perspective. 
They showed her on the inside of the shower and then the knife on the outside of the shower. But here's the kicker. The killer stabs through the shower into Meg's back and then drags the blade down and through her back to her tailbone while still also stabbing and dragging down through the linoleum of the shower wall. And while this is happening, this knife is going through a wall and then stabbing her. So it's got to go through a, a substance to get to her. Meg doesn't attempt to like adjust her body or push away from the knife or like get away from the stab that's coming from outside of the shower. She almost leans back into the stab like she's more concerned with how pretty her agony dying face is than with what your body would actually do if you were getting stabbed from outside of a room and you're inside the room but say it with me it's a slasher movie <laughs> so paul we cut back paul sees angie at the social and tries to apologize again. He keeps begging her to give her him another chance. And keeps saying things like, you know I'm sorry. <laughs> and Angie's like, meet me on the beach later tonight after the social. So he's like, cool. Judy comes out with one of the older dudes being a bitch to both of them while they're talking. Okay. So one of the counselors, Eddie, has to take a bunch of the kids out camping in the woods that night. Like the ones that threw sand at Ricky and Angie, the, the baby babies. Two of the kids asked to go back to the cabins because it's too cold. So Eddie takes them back, but the other four kids stay asleep in the woods. And right when he leaves with the kids, we see a first person perspective of someone looking at the sleeping kids through the trees and then focusing in on a hatchet that had been left for, behind for cutting wood. Okay. Now, back in the girls' cabin, Judy's making out with Mike. Mel comes looking for Meg. And Judy tells him the last time she saw her was before her shower. So Mike had to hide under Judy's bed. But when Mel leaves, Mike gets nervous that he's going to come back and decide he don't want to get in trouble. And he dips. Judy is pissed, calls him chicken shit, and then pouts on the bed because I guess she's not going to get her no dick. I don't know what her plans were because she's like 14 or 15 but she was really mad that Mike left. Okay, Mel goes in the shower to look for Meg in the other cabin. And conveniently, as soon as he walks in, she just falls out of the shower. For some reason, he decides that Ricky must have done this to get back at him. Not to get back at her for like throwing Angela in the water or being mean to Angela, but to get back at him who hadn't even presumably smashed yet, and nobody had any idea that he was even thinking about smashing this girl. But he thinks it's Ricky, and now he has to get revenge for this 18-year-old girl that he ain't get to smash. Okay, uh, back in the girl's cabin, Judy is in her room curling her hair. Now, listen, there are very few times that I will say trigger warning on this show because a lot of old movies just aren't that triggering like general slasher things that happen like you know how these movies are but this I have to say it now there is sexual violence approaching very short and I will add a timestamp in the show notes just so that you know where to skip to but this is one of those movie moments that just has stuck with me ever since I saw it and it's not 
shown graphically, but I, I've never forgotten it. Okay. So Judy is curling her hair and she thinks that that boy Mike came back and the door opens and there's a shadow of this random dude with a mullet in the doorway. Still don't know what exactly she was seeing, but they walk in and punch her in the face. And then, okay, I just got to Okay, I got to go. Okay, so they cover her face with a pillow while she's knocked out. And you can see them pick up the curling iron. And it's suggested by the shadow and her screaming that they assault her with the hot curling iron while they smother her face with the pillow to death. And I hate it. Okay, we are done with that. Great. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you for getting through that with me. And if you had to fast forward, I totally understand. So we see Judy's body being put under the bed. We cut to Eddie coming back to the baby campers. And their sleeping bags are chopped up and axed through and bloody and just a mess. Poor babies. So he is sick. The camp is in a panic. Mel has gone to find Ricky, but didn't tell anybody about Meg. So when they go to search for all the missing campers, they end up finding Meg as well, too. So now it's like a whole mess. Meanwhile, Mel snatches Ricky off a road and just starts blatantly accusing him of killing Meg. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but he ends up knocking Ricky over and beats him unconscious. So once he's satisfied that he did his duty and um, fought for his girl, he comes out. And of course, the killer's just standing there holding the arrow. So he's like, oh, no, it's not you. It can't be you. And the killer doesn't even have a bow. He, they just throw the arrow and it goes through Mel's neck right through the middle and just he falls over. Okay. So Angela now meets up with Paul on the beach and she says she wants to go for a swim. And he's like, we ain't got no swimsuit. So she tells him, you know, let's just, let's just go for it. So he's excited. He, he goes to take his clothes off. And while that's going on, the people who are searching for all the missing campers, they find Ricky in the woods, but he's alive. He's just beat up. Okay, so they're still looking for everybody, and they say that they hear singing coming from the beach. A couple of the search party campers find Angela sitting with Paul, laying peacefully with his head in her lap. They call out to her, and then we cut to a flashback from many years ago, right after the boat incident. Uh, Martha's talking about how happy she is to finally have a daughter, how glad Richard will be to have a little sister when he comes back from camp. He, She's always wanted a daughter, but after her husband left, you know, she wasn't able to, but now she's happy she has her little girl. And then she says, we already have a little boy, so we can't have two that won't do absolutely won't do the camera pans around and we find out that angela is actually peter the little boy and angela the real angela was actually the person that died in the accident so peter a little boy has been forced to live as his sister a girl for all of these years so angela stands up paul's decapitated head rolls out of her lap as she stands up. She is completely covered in blood and she makes this creepy wide mouth 
screaming face and the snarling noise comes out of their mouth and she they're completely naked we get a fully frontal nude shot of a bloody boyish body a screaming face and a penis and then we get a close-up of that face and the credits roll over that face while a super 80s song called Angela's Theme plays. I'm pretty sure it was written specifically for this movie by this guy, Frankie Vinci, and he also wrote another song for this movie as well. You remember how I said this movie was made for the ending? That's what I mean. This movie probably could have been about anything. It didn't have to be about camp or literal children to come up with an ending where there is a girl who is actually a boy because that's the whole point also i mean okay people live outside of their true gender identity to conform to societal standards every day either for fear or just because they don't think it's normal they're made to feel like it's abnormal that's what the trans fight is about right now people being able to live in their true gender identities I know that this was a forced transition of sorts, but it also seemed like Angela was comfortable with Paul. She seemed to have like embraced her femininity. They they could have very well been like a, a, a girl who dressed like a tomboy or acted like a tomboy, but I know that it could have also been brainwashing from Aunt Martha. I get that. They never really go into much past their uh, the aunt being eccentric. They don't explain why or what kind of doctor she is or what she had to do with Angela or Peter's development. So we don't really know if this gender confusion of sorts um, is coming from the aunt's brainwashing or because there was some sort of gender identity confusion already in the works. Who knows? But I do know that alluding to this idea that gender confusion of sorts leads to this level of violence this early in life, like literally murdering children and adults at an age like 13 or 14 years old is quite extreme. I mentioned that this movie has made $11 million over time through box office, home box office, and general sales. The first weekend that this $350,000 movie came out, it made $90,000 at the box office. Clearly, it wasn't a fan favorite. People weren't running out to see this movie. But the more people have heard about the ending and heard about the weird, gruesome, over-the-top deaths of this film, it has become a cult classic. I don't have much analysis. The camera work was very 80s. It had that muted color that was common at the time. Acting was pretty subpar, except for an old girl who was on that jet ski. If you watch this movie for any reason, I would say watch it for old girl that was on the jet ski because sis gave the performance of her life. If you want to watch it, I watched it for free through Roku. But, you know, you don't necessarily need to see this one, maybe. Maybe, maybe you could just listen to this podcast. And if you really need to see the last shot, you can definitely go look it up. You could just type in Sleepaway Camp last shot and you will see what it looks like. And I'm also going to have the close-up face shot on the Pod Instagram. I uh, can't put the whole shot because 
it will probably be taken down. It's a fully nude shot, but you don't. Nah, you could you could probably you could probably sit it out unless you are super into slasher films and you're like I've never heard of this. This sounds insane. I have to see it. Please do if that's if that's your feel. But if you're not, you you could probably sit it out unless I made it sound just that great. But like I I doubt it. All right, that is it. Thank you so much for listening to my sleepaway camp rundown. I hope you enjoyed it enough. I hope it made I made it sound exciting enough. Um, next week for our last October episode, we'll be headed back into the vault for an old film from the 40s that you may have never heard of. But the title is something that we are very familiar with as a concept today. And the film, it's wild. It's a it's a good, it's a good one. Um, please follow the podcast on whatever platform you use most often and check out the Halaif Pod Instagram. That's H-L-A-Y-F-P-O-D on Instagram. I usually post movie stills and fun facts over there as well. And I'm going to start posting some other things as well as we keep going. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at film underscore Nikki and send any advice, recommends, or general greetings to my Twitter, Instagram, or here's looking podcast at gmail.com. That's H-E-R-E-S-L-O-O-K-I-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. And if I don't see you, as always, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Cheers. Cheers.